I wonder if you're someone that watches the news closely. I must admit I do. I listen to the news morning, evening, see what's broken overnight. I picked up a piece of news fairly recently about a sale that Bonhams held in London, and they were selling a rather strange item. They were selling a seven-inch long cigar that was 70 years old. Uh, the cigar had belonged originally to Winston Churchill, uh, but uh, a, an auditor who had been at Winston Churchill's home for a dinner party was there when the cigars were passed round, and he managed one seven-inch cigar, but when the box was passed round again, he decided, I can't smoke two seven-inch cigars at one sitting, so he slipped it quietly into his pocket. Seventy years later, a relative of his presented this cigar, a 70-year-old, seven-inch cigar, in a presentation box, to be admitted, with a, a plaque saying that this was a cigar owned by Winston Churchill and with a little memo with Winston Churchill's signature on. So what did it make? Any ideas? Well, let me give you a clue. Back in the 2018, Piers Morgan bought a part-smoked Winston Churchill <laughs> cigar for £2,600. Expensive cigar. What about this one, though? Uh, unsmoked, seven inch long, 70 years old, in a presentation case with a nice framed uh, memo with a signature of Winston Churchill. £4,000 is bid. Any advance on £4,000? £120,000. No, you've gone a bit too far. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. £25,500. £25,500 for a cigar. What, what was the value to the purchaser of that cigar? The value is not found in the cigar itself. There's possibly a little bit of value in the signature. The value is found not in the cigar, but in who owned it. That's the message I'm about to get across to you this morning. You and I at times feel pretty worthless. And we meet people who have a habit of, make, of putting us down and making us feel we don't amount to much. And sometimes we can feel that about ourselves. I'm not really that important. People wouldn't miss me if I wasn't here. You know, I, I turn up at church, but no one really knows me. But actually... Our value is not found in how intelligent we are, what's in the bank, or what our position in, in society is. Our value, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, our value is found in our relationship with one who is the Son of God, our Savior. And although we may feel worthless, he thinks we are worthwhile. That was the message that Peter wanted to get across to these new believers who were scattered across modern-day Turkey, who were being persecuted and finding life tough, and realizing that people in society didn't reckon they were important. But Peter is writing to say, do you know, you need to reckon your value not in what you think 
about yourself. Not in what others think about you, but in what Jesus Christ thinks about you. So in this passage of scripture, he first of all encourages them in the first three verses to get rid of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. In other words, don't act and react like secular society. At times we can find ourselves drawn into conversations at work where those sort of attitudes are displayed. But Peter says, no, don't think like the world. Don't speak like the world. Don't use attitudes that destroy relationships like the world does. And you say, how? And he says, read on. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he said, don't tune into the values of the world, but get a taste for God's truth and God's word. Get a taste for pleasing the one who is your savior. You've tasted that he's good. Develop an appetite for more and more of his presence and his grace. And in that way, you will grow up in your salvation. What does that mean, to grow up in salvation? Well, if you read the New Testament, you'll find that the Apostle Paul talks up to the, writes to the Ephesians about, you have been saved. So why do you need to grow up in something that's already happened? Of course, when we confess our sins and we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, he forgives us and we are in that moment forgiven, accepted, born again. We are saved. It's done. But writing to Christians at Corinth, the same Apostle Paul said, to as many of us as are being saved. So having been saved by being forgiven, God wants to do a work in our lives that involves transformation so we become more and more like Jesus. That's a progressive salvation. So we grow from having been forgiven to be being changed. And then he writes on a later occasion to Christians at Rome about that we shall be saved from God's wrath, future, past, present, future. So having been saved through forgiveness and our being saved through being transformed, there come a day when we will see the Lord and become like him so we need to grow up from one stage to another until we see him and become like him. And how do we do it? By developing an appetite for wholesome food and turning off the volume of the other attitudes that can so often infect our thinking and our minds. But the focus of our message this morning is not the first three verses. The focus is the next verses. I'm going to read them again. As you come to him, verse 4, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, have been built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I am laying a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. A stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Can you see how in these verses, he's building them up. He's helping them to tune into how God sees them and not how other people see them. And in fact, he's introducing, he's got it, three ways in which he does this. First of all, he asks them to consider their new relationship with Jesus Christ. In these verses, he pictures Jesus like a rock or a stone. And basically suggests there are two attitudes people in general have to Jesus Christ. Some reject him. And some see him as the chosen one. And it's the most important decision a person can make in the whole of their lives. Because it will determine their eternal destiny. We read here that those who choose to trust him will never be put to shame. And yet, how many times have you felt put to shame in the sense of someone made you look small? I'm not saying it won't happen, that we get under pressure at times and people ignore us. But ultimately, in the final analysis, when the books are opened and we stand before the king, we'll not be ashamed and not be put to shame. Alternatively, those who reject this this stone that is precious in God's sight and precious in our sight will actually find him a stumbling block. Those who do not believe, verse 7, will find that the stone that the builders rejected becomes the capstone, but also causes them to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. Two alternatives. He's writing to these and said, you've got a new relationship with Jesus. Once he was a nobody to you, now he's chosen, precious. And because you've chosen him, he's got a plan and a future for you. Of course, the Apostle Peter knew a little bit about rocks and stones, did he not? Wasn't he the one to whom Jesus said, you are the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church? And he said it the moment that Peter said, you're the precious one, you're the chosen one, you're the saviour, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, literally. And in that moment, Jesus said to Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. Some people think that was his confession, but actually look at the Acts of the Apostles. Peter was pretty foundational in the establishment of the early church, day of Pentecost particularly. So Peter understood something about rocks and also about becoming a living stone, joining Jesus the foundation stone. And so he's writing out of his own experience And he's encouraging them to realize that they've got a new relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that gives them value. 
Some commentators suggest, I'm going to trouble this look, Mike. Some commentators suggest that actually behind this illustration is a story. And the story is that when Solomon's temple was being built, the rocks, the, br- the big stones that were brought for the building of the temple were quarried elsewhere and they were brought on site and no chisel was allowed to touch the rocks on site. They had to be quarried to perfect size in the quarry and then brought into Jerusalem. The story is told that one such rock was brought and didn't fit where it was supposed to go. And it was laid to one side, and frankly, it was in the way. But then as they reached toward the end of the building of the temple, there was a rock missing, a stone missing. And would you believe it? The one that had been rejected fitted the bill. Peter's using that idea to suggest to the nation of Israel, and to us as well, that we can at times reject this Savior Messiah, but we'll find in the final analysis, when history books are opened and this world is no more, he will be the keystone, the cornerstone, the unique one. And we'd better make that discovery sooner rather than later. I wonder, have you got, have you got a new relationship with Jesus Christ? Once you thought he was a nobody, now you realize God's chosen him, he's precious, and he's become chosen and precious to you as well. That's the first thing that Peter says to them. You've got a new relationship. Though in verse 8, there's a really quite worrying phrase where he's writing about those people who stumble, and they stumble because they disobey the message. This next phrase, which is also what they were destined for. How do we understand that? Now, there are sections of the Christian church that understand it this way. That some people are destined to become Christians, and some people are destined never to become Christians. That's not how I read this passage at all. How I read this passage is this. That those people who reject Jesus are destined to stumble and fall. So it's not that God has chosen who stumbles and falls. It's rather that by our lack of choosing Jesus, we stumble and fall. But if only we would choose Jesus, we would not stumble and fall, but we'd never be ashamed. We must be careful how we interpret some of these words, frankly. So let's, let's move then to the second section. Having considered our new relationship with Jesus, he's precious, he's chosen, God chose him, he's precious, I chose him, he's precious. And yet he chose me as well, I know. I realize that, but I still had a decision to make, and so did you. (laughs) So having considered our new relationship with Jesus, he then asks us to consider their new identity because of Jesus. Verse 9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Verse 10, once you were no people, now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, now you have. So not only has the believer a new relationship, a new attitude to Jesus, but he's adopted into a whole new family. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. Those who know the Bible well will think, I've heard that phrasing before. 
I've heard that phrasing before, not in the New Testament, but the Old Testament. I've heard that phrasing before, back in the book of Exodus, when Moses and the children of Israel were at Sinai, and God said something pretty similar to the nation of Israel that he now seems to be saying, through Peter, to the Christian believer. Exodus 19, let's look at it in context. Exodus 19, verse 6. So the children of Israel are at Sinai. And Moses went up to God, verse 3, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So how do we understand what Peter wrote to Christians? Is it, is it that what God originally intended for the children of Israel is now the calling of the Christian church? Does it mean that they've missed their chance Does it mean that the Christian church replaces the children of Israel in the purposes and plans of God? Again, there are some churches that suggest that. I do not believe it for one minute. Some of the churches that suggest that are the same churches that suggest that if you and I become a Christian and we trust in Christ Jesus, we're absolutely eternally secure no matter what. So Christians have eternal security, but according to that same group of churches, the children of Israel don't. How can that be right? Now, I'm not saying that everything is perfect in Israel, and I'm not saying that God smiles benevolently on what's happening in the nation of Israel at the moment. But I am saying that the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has not given up on his people. In fact, the prophet Zechariah tells us there's coming a day when the children of Israel will look upon him who they pierced and mourn, repent. In other words, they will realize that the Messiah who they crucified so many years ago is none other than the Savior as he comes again. And a fountain of cleansing, chapter 13 of Zechariah verse 1, will be opened for the house of David. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. You'll find the Apostle Paul believed that God still has a plan for the children of Israel. So how do I understand it then? God had a purpose and a plan for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. that Through them, the world would be blessed. A Savior would come. And he asked us to pick up that baton that some have dropped and carry that message of the Savior to the world that through us the, the nations may be blessed. We join them in that calling. We don't replace them in that calling. So he spoke about a new relationship with Jesus, precious, chosen. He spoke about a new identity, a calling to be God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
and tells them once they were no people, now they're God's people. Some folks are pretty proud of their family history. You know, we are the Parkinson's, we are the Ellishows. <laughs> but we don't boast that too loud because we know that every human family is flawed and every human family has things that we could be ashamed of. But when we become a Christian, we have a perfect Heavenly Father. And we've got an international, amazing, extended family. Once we were no people, now we're God's people. Once we'd not received mercy, now we have received mercy. A new identity comes along with a new relationship. I am now a child of God. I am now God's precious child. New relationship, new identity brings us to the last, the third point. What else was there? A new responsibility. Verse 5. You're like living stones. You've been built into a spiritual house. But you're not just to stand there and do nothing like a stone, but become a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And down at, at verse 9 that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So having a new relationship and a new identity, we've got a new responsibility, which is to tell others about how how they too can join this amazing family. Uh, To tell others about this Jesus who is often disregarded and sometimes his name is used as a swear word, but not he's chosen and precious. And he will ultimately be the capstone. He will ultimately be the one who brings history to a climax and a conclusion. We have a responsibility to share that. To declare his praises. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Oh, wait a minute. I thought sacrifices ended when Jesus died on the cross. It did. In terms of atoning for our sin. But the New Testament does actually speak about us offering sacrifices. Paul, Romans 1 and 2. In view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we offer ourselves. Not to die, but to live. To live for him who died for us. But there's something even more specific and it's listed for us in Hebrews 12, 15, and 16. Where the apostle writing to the Hebrews writes this. Chapter 12 of Hebrews 15 and 16. Well, that can't be right. Maybe it's 13. Wait a minute. Yeah, it's 13. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we offer sacrifices by words, but also by actions, and please God. Offer acceptable 
sacrifices. So here we have it. Where's our value found? Is it in our qualifications? Is it in our employment? Is it in our status within the family? Is it in our position in work? No, no, no. Our true value can be found if we have turned to Jesus Christ and seen him as the chosen and precious one. If we realize that he's calling us and adopted into his purpose and plan for eternity, the church does have a calling to fulfill. To be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, to make a difference. And we do it simply by being generous people who give and being people who are prepared to speak positively. We don't go with accusation. We go with a positive testimony about who Jesus is and what he does for us and can do for others. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that we live in a fallen world that at times there are those who love to put people down. We're so thankful that when we become a follower of Jesus, we follow someone who who wants to build us up who wants to offer us a new relationship with himself, who wants to give us a new identity within a new family, and who simply says, all I ask you to do is share with others what I've done for you. Lord, help us to realize more and more how precious and chosen you are, and help us simply enjoying that relationship to speak positively of you to others. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.